I'm Laura Clinton, and this is KindredCast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree, the independent investment and merchant bank for creativity, community, and capital. Today, in what has become an annual tradition, we present our 2023 Outlook. LionTree founder and CEO Arya Burkov and public markets lead Leslie Mallon discuss their expectations for the year ahead. Their conversation provides unique insight into the themes that will dominate the next 12 months and spans everything from the current macro environment to advancements in technology like AI, as well as revisiting some of REA's predictions from last year's discussion. Enjoy! Well, I guess to start, I'd say, great to see you. Nice to see you, too. Um, and based on your Instagram posts, it looks like you were in UAE, I think, over the holidays. I was in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you can go to the snow or the sea to get some peace. But the desert <laughs> is sometimes overlooked and the sand can clear the head as well. I was just thinking about how many years we've been doing this annual podcast. And I think it's been about four or five years. And every year, there seems to be more and more to talk about. But it's just interesting, the last several years have been so starkly different from the global pandemic to a frenzy in a lot of asset classes to a bust within some of those same asset classes. And then now we're facing a much more challenging environment in 2023. So it's a particularly important moment right now. And I have a lot of what I think are pivotal questions for you in our discussion. So you've gotten increasingly intimidating as an interviewer <laughs> over, over the times that we've been doing this. You've made me tougher. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, these are not like easy discussions for me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, but very informative and I look forward to them. Yeah. Well, I'm going to just jump in then okay. on that note. But first, just taking a, a step back a little bit high level. 2021's letter was about unlocking with purpose. It was about really expounding on the viewpoint that a life of integrity can't be lived for oneself. It needs purpose. And last year was a year of learning, questioning, and digging deep. This year's letter is about growing down. And just as a quote, seeing scarcity as an opportunity to go deep within in order to emerge to what is required to go beyond even your original expectation. I know we're going to get into a lot of details as we go along, but to start, just what is this big picture theme to set the context of our conversation? The year end 2021 letter, really foreshadowing 2022, was talking about cross currents and things that were moving into normalization periods post-pandemic and trying to make sense of it all in a late-stage economic cycle and also seeing technology innovation at its height. And you mentioned different asset classes, like you're referring to crypto and NFTs and things that now people say are crazy, but all kinds of things going on at the same time. Out-of-home activities like live events coming back and travel and leisure, where the digitization trends were sort of abating, like e-commerce and direct-to-consumer that were peaking all through the pandemic. And all those cross currents and normalization trends in the late stage cycle was sort of hard to peg. And that all came crashing down to some extent in late 2022 with the Fed really trying to catch up to inflation trends. And frankly, if I'm being self-critical, we missed it in our letter 
really talking about debt markets, something that where I really started my career with, we didn't really talk all that much about capital structure and about the fixed income markets and the 10-year treasury and how far that has been an impact in the marketplace and the Fed and the hawkishness of the Fed overall really playing a role into depressing stock values in 2022. But it all goes back to getting back to a normalization period of what is the real economy. And that goes into taking and pricking a period of abundance and knowing that when rates go higher and the cost of capital goes higher, we are moving into a slowdown and we're moving into choices and we can't have it all. We have to make a choice between one thing or the other. And that moves into a period of scarcity. Once you move into a period of scarcity, which takes the form of many different things, which is your ability to raise the next round of capital is not a given. If you don't have enough liquidity to get through a cycle, you may not make it through the cycle. Can you pay your heating bills or your food bills? And there's a lot of factors for that, not just inflation or interest rates, given what's going on in Ukraine and so on and food supply. How do you make choices with the cost of that innovation and the cost of those choices continuing to go up and that scarcity? And then beyond that, how do you keep that purposeful mentality and an abundant mentality or a mentality of integrity when you have to think about the here and now and think about self-sufficiency and think about going inside versus being there for others? Really challenging stuff. That sort of set the backdrop for the letter for this year. I guess in this time of scarcity, talking a little bit more specifics on the markets, and you mentioned a number of the stressors with inflation and lack of stimulus, war in Ukraine, supply chain, FX, and I'm sure I'm missing a number of other factors. But when you talk to CEOs of the largest companies in the sector, what are they planning for as they strategize for the year ahead? Are they envisioning an elongated recession or something quicker? What are you hearing from management teams? Profitability, which means there is a slowdown, whether it's an ad-driven slowdown in the case of media or a subscription-driven slowdown in the case of streamers or the need to play into a higher cost structure and try to get ahead of it by building margin cushion and getting more profitability and therefore more liquidity and deleveraging and financial flexibility. All that goes to playing into the bottom line versus growth at all costs. And that is actually good news for stable recurring businesses that are tried and true, going back to having their moment versus the super high growth businesses that are maybe putting off profitability towards the long into the future. It doesn't mean that technology and innovation are no longer du jour. They're just not as investable today in the markets, or they're not attracting as much capital as the bulletproof defensive names. And some of those names are getting all-time low discounted valuations, which means so if you can invest in a discounted company with a dividend payer or a strong cash flow stream and a profitability curve that you could depend on, they can weather the storm a lot more easily And that becomes more investable than buying a speculative asset that doesn't have profitability anytime soon and can't necessarily attract new forms of capital or capital raising at a high valuation. That makes sense. So that's where we've reverted to in the near term. Winners attract the winning valuations and the winning dollars all the time. And that's what you're seeing now with AI and the new trends and early stage investing 
always has the ability to track the dollars and the venture model is still very much alive. It's just we're taking a bit of a breather from funding all different kinds of businesses and just the amount of supply of businesses out there from the last few years has to kind of abate. Right. When you look at the interest rate front, the Fed obviously has made some aggressive moves, which has helped with CPI. And core CPI has peaked while still high at about 6%. But you made some cautionary comments in your year-end letter about the direction even from here of where we're going to see rates. So do you think they've peaked? When do they peak? At what level do you think they'll peak? Where do you see... I think we still have a ways to go on interest rate rises. And I think that we have seen inflation come down from the peak. We saw some encouraging news out of the Eurozone and Spain over the holidays where we got to sub 6%. So the good news is the Fed policies and central government's policies seem to be working in a lagging effect, but we're not necessarily out of the woods. And the real interest rates are still very low. And there's still a lot more cushion the Fed has to get ahead of this versus just playing catch up. So I think we could get to potentially five to six percent over the course of 2023 in terms of rates on the risk free rate. I think that becomes increasingly priced into the markets. I think it's not there yet. So I think there's still more bearishness on the relation between interest rates and inflation. The next phase issue is really just cost structures for companies and earnings for companies which goes to supply chain and the pullback from globalization trends. And I'm not saying it's a full deglobalized world where you have to rebuild all supply chains, but there is pressure on costs. Then it goes to the third wave, which is how do you value enterprises over the long term when metrics aren't showing structural growth in the short term? So not to be too academic about it, but the long-term valuation of an enterprise goes to the discounted cash flow model ultimately, which assigns a perpetuity growth rate to the final year. And that's really what matters, that last year's growth rate with a multiple discounted back. What happens near term is less relevant. That's why it sets up a long-term investor horizon, if you could just think long-term. But if the next few years really are showing metrics that are going negative, then you start to wonder, is that long-term property growth rate growing positively the right metric or are the near-term negative trends more appropriate? And is this industry set up for structural growth or is it in structural decline because of other factors like oversupply, the inability to get cost efficiencies, and does it need consolidation to get back to being on the front foot from a margin perspective, goes back to reconsolidation, or do we need to get into more structural growth industries or are we in late stages of a cycle that we need to actually slow down first for a while to get back to what are the real industries structurally in this country and globally that are in growth mode versus the ones that are just taking share, which has a lot more cost to it. We haven't crept into that psychology yet, not to be too dire, but I think that's really where the issue is. is where is the real growth in the economy? I think that's harder to put your finger on. Right. And with that backdrop and a rate environment that's still not constructive necessarily and these economic uncertainties, then taking that back to M&A, which is still the core of Lion Tree's business, what is your outlook in your head? I mean, what have you already seen in terms of impact and how do you think that's going to translate into the year ahead? So M&A has definitely slowed down a lot in 2022 and continuing to 2023. That being said, M&A is a central tool 
for companies to either improve their cost structure. So merging two companies together can spread costs out over a larger entity if they can be better managed and well-managed. Two is it can reconsolidate smaller players into a larger cluster. Three, it can obviously give you revenue extensions and business extensions. It can create stronger players out of a weaker marketplace because the strong players can attract lower cost of capital and give it a competitive advantage versus others, and that can be seized upon. And the TMT, the telecom media technology area, tends to get a disproportionately high percentage of M&A volume versus the overall marketplace. So I think globally, TMT is about 25%, according to your slides, 25% of overall M&A volume in the U.S. is about 35%. So for our firm, that's where we're focused and we could do a better job filling in the gaps holistically. In some areas, we're better in telecoms, like in Europe and parts of the U.S. and other areas were better in media. Some areas were better in tech geographically. But that's where a high percentage of M&A still happens because those are subscale industries that need scale to accelerate margins and profitability. But the key thing is picking the winners per vertical, getting them the consolidation expertise, and playing offense at the right time. Now, the structure of that M&A may be more stock-based, like stock-for-stock deals versus cash, because you want to preserve your cash in an inflationary environment when interest rates are going up, and it's hard to raise more cash. So stock-for-stock deals you've seen in the public domain, and people have gotten an ability to ground themselves on the valuation of the here and now versus waiting for a rebound. So that has happened now where people aren't waiting for valuations to rebound. Has there been capitulation on the part of management teams on valuation? Because sometimes it's a lag period when you see these market dislocations. Public markets, yes. Private markets, no. Right. And it all goes back to the private markets how much liquidity you have. If you have enough liquidity through 2025 or so, then certainly you're going to be more patient. If your liquidity is more uh, precious, you may have capitulated on valuation to do something and partner up. But the other form of M&A that you're seeing is corporate simplification. So you may spin off a division or sell an asset to deleverage because what you don't want right now is to have a company with too much debt. You want more financial flexibility. So people are willing to sell assets as long as they can get a good valuation for those assets and sold them to a synergy buyer. And those can be funded. And then the other thing is for the public companies, what we call reference shareholders, CEOs in search of a long-term investor base, where a lot of them face an index fund mentality among the U.S. public stockholders, try to find a longer-term investor base and therefore seek whether it's a sovereign or family office capital or Berkshire Hathaway-like capital, that could give them a longer-term investor base, even as a public company. And then the CEO can play offense over the next year or so while others are playing more defense. And that gives them a competitive advantage, lower cost of capital, the ability to consolidate weaker players. That's where you shift from growing down to growing up, so to speak. Right. It's the holy grail investor, I think, the reference shareholder. Yeah, it may not lead to as much trading and liquidity in the markets. The Porsche IPO is a good example of that. The Porsche IPO went public with 40% of the allocated book going to four long-term investors, three sovereigns, and T. Rowe Price. And Mobileye was very concentrated. Mobileye was concentrated. If you're the management team, you have a shareholder base that understands your long-term vision, and you may be able to use that capital base to be more secure about playing offense and taking some risk over the longer term versus playing to the short-term marketplace. Right. And what about some of the strategics as part of that? The Microsoft recently invested in the London Stock Exchange, also signed a long-term deal with them. I think that's the key thing. I think when you see the technology companies who it could be considered like sovereigns because they have excess capital, excess cash, then 
they are investing in companies as a minority stake, which also goes to regulatory temperaments now on not being able to buy companies outright, not that they would the London Stock Exchange. But I think the second part of what you said is key, which is signing a long-term commercial agreement. I'm not sure if it's the investment that's driving that or the commercial agreement. I think it's probably the commercial agreement that's driving that, whether it's helping in Microsoft's case, the Azure cloud-based solution, or in other cases, their ad-based solution. They didn't end up investing in Netflix, but they did a Netflix deal for the Avod service, for the advertising video on demand service. It was also the same thing, recall, that Palantir did with SPAC pipes. Correct. When, you know, that was still, yeah, Correct. they were so, very active there. So I think using a bit of cash and investment to help secure a commercial arrangement is probably the way to think about it. And then that could be a sort of anchor investment as well. The best example of that was Microsoft investing in Comcast in 1997, which was a billion-dollar investment in Comcast as a way to reach the consumer through the set-top boxes that Comcast is offering. And at that time, interest rates were rising. There was a lot of CapEx in the cable cycle that were suppressing and depressing cable multiples. And Microsoft, as a blue-chip, very well-rated, single-rated company investing in the cable industry through Comcast turned the industry around, gave people a sense of real financial support and power, and multiples went up, and people weren't as worried about leverage anymore. And it was a win-win. They didn't get any rights for it, but their stock price entry point appreciated, and Comcast and the rest of the cable industry really had a a much better uh, recovery at that point. It's a good example. In your letter... You call out software and video games as two subsectors where you expect to see more activity. Two questions. One question, with the pending Microsoft Activision deal, do you think that will be approved at the end of the day? We're not involved in the deal. I think they're going to obviously fight it very hard, Microsoft. It's a tricky FTC these days. Mergers are much harder to get done, especially those sizable ones. So I'm not going to make a call on the podcast here one way or the other (laughs) on the deal environment. But I would say that by traditional standards, it should get done because of it not being a anti-competitive purchase from a gaming perspective. But I think that the rules have changed and it's not just being looked at in terms of deals being anti-competitive now. It's really about concentration and technology, big tech being a buyer of assets. That's the risk factor right now. So I think that's giving all the big tech companies pause about what they do next. So second question on video games relates a bit more to the going forward M&A picture. Do you envision that coming from the media side to video game, the tech side or in market consolidation? I think it's coming from both geographic expansion areas beyond the US. I think there'll be in market interactive entertainment, gaming, consolidation happening. I think media and sports in particular are uh, good partners for gaming companies. I would say that's probably more than uh, tech. Less so tech. Yeah. Gotcha. And just to wrap up on this section, regulatory, it sounds like your view is that maybe a little bit more difficult looking in the year ahead. We were able to get the MGM sale approved to Amazon, which is probably the only content technology merger done and approved in the regulatory environment. But it's hard to see those happening anytime soon again in terms of like Apple or Microsoft or Amazon buying a big media company right now. That being said, again, they're not necessarily anti-competitive. It depends on how you look at it. But I do think that there is still a need for scale in media. And I think that the technology companies 
may end up being good investors in media companies more than just acquirers. And the way that those could be structured could unlock some value without having to be fully acquired. On the the capital markets front, which I spent a lot of time on, the IPO market was effectively closed in 2022. And obviously, investors' appetite for high growth, lack of profitability really was a part of that. What is your outlook for 2023 as it relates to the IPO window? Still too many companies in the public domain that need to be flushed out, reconsolidated, unclogged, so to speak, before you see an opening of the IPO market. But that being said, I think that the best companies always can find their window. Valuation aside, valuation will be more of the buyer's market, the investor's market today. I go back to that Nike example, 1980, 1981, where they opened the market and the market was otherwise closed and ended up being the high-flying stock when everything else was pretty dormant because it was the best brand, the best company going public, and otherwise it was going to be closed. So I think that that could happen. There are other markets besides the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange as well, whether it's Luxembourg or the LSC or even Abu Dhabi that has now a burgeoning marketplace that before you even get to China or the US, those are interesting places to list as sort of like a seasoning ground that's not facing oversupply. Universal Music did that in Luxembourg to list there before eventually probably coming to New York. So you could start seeing other markets open before the US if companies really need liquidity in the IPO market. I would say the IPO market being relatively dormant for the next few months, it's more of a second half phenomenon, also puts a little more buoyancy on the M&A market as the exit alternative, but with favorable terms because of the lack of cash right now in the marketplace and having more truth when it comes to valuations, expectations. So I think M&A is going to stay relatively strong because the IPO markets will stay down right now. Right. I do think there have been a few constructive signs for the reopening. As you know, we track that very closely, but the magnitude by which we saw the contraction in this year versus, say, the dot-com boom and bust was much more condensed. So we took our pain more quickly. Mm -hmm. So one could make the case we would see a quick rebound as a positive. You've seen market volatility come down dramatically, which we need as a backdrop. The markets are performing, at least as till now, a little bit more constructively. CPI has peaked, which is a positive, but I think we talked about just before, the interest rate picture is still not visible, which seems like one of the last KPIs that we really need to see improve. I think all those points are right. Even if you get certainty and clarity on the interest rate picture, and it allows for a backdrop to open up the public markets, the companies that are the best private companies that want to go public won't find 2023 to be their window where they can achieve their best valuation. So they'll probably still end up wanting to wait until next year. So the question is, which ones really push through this year? There will be a pipeline of companies that want to go public in 2023 as soon as the window opens. And some have tried. They're already on file. But the question is, do they take down rounds? So it could be a good buyer's market when the window opens, but there'll be negotiated deals in certain cases. I just think it'll be more in the second half of the year at the end of the day. Right. Because aside from IPOs, SPACs have also had a very challenging time in 2022. You still have a vehicle with Kevin Durant and Rich Kleiman. How are you feeling about the prospects of finding the right asset to take public? Yes, the SPAC market is all but dead, pretty much. It's really out of favor, obviously, to say the obvious. It's because the nature of the shareholder base is just to redeem as soon as you come with a deal. And so any SPAC deal really needs a fresh 
capital base as well. Our capital base is held in there. We are seeing high-quality companies that want to come public. And the question is, can they attract the pipe or the private capital at the same time that you're going public? So it's not just about putting it into the public vehicle and through the SPAC, but can it also attract the private capital? We are still hopeful that there could be a couple that sneak through. And our, our whole play was to be one of the last ones out and therefore be one of the last ones left standing and be an alternative for private companies that could go public. The good news is a lot of the fluff or speculative private companies that would have otherwise tried to go public through SPACs, we're not talking to any of those. We're only talking to the ones that really are of the highest quality that now only can really go public through a vehicle like this. Otherwise, they have to wait till next year. And so that provides a bit of an opening if it can be negotiated properly and attract some private capital at the same time. So we'll see. Encouraging. Yeah, we'll see. So I wanted to move on to some sector themes as well. Streaming is the first one. We seem to have hit a new stage of the streaming wars, and it's more about survival and finding a way to profitability, which ties back into your earlier comment. Do you think the streamers are going to be able to actually reach their profitability targets given the industry structure as is? It's a great question about industry structure. So talk about cross currents that we mentioned earlier. When an industry transforms itself from effectively B2B, like a business-to-business relationship to a B2C relationship, being the media industry was used to working with other component parts of the industry. So a content creator, a studio worked with a distributor and a distributor worked with the cable provider and the cable provider then reached the consumer. That was the B2B bundled environment. Once the producer of content becomes a distributor, i.e. like a Netflix and that sets up a streaming environment and everyone follows suit by relinquishing the B2B model in favor of the B2C model and spending their core cash flow on a model that is much more transactional towards getting customers. It is a transitory model, which is fraught with management complexity and uncertainty whether people can get to the other side of the ocean. Only Netflix so far, maybe Disney, has appeared to be able to achieve scale of that customer base. Others have been able to achieve higher quality content and maybe pat themselves on the back because they're able to play in that field, but not at scale yet, which doesn't set up profitability metrics. So there's a difference between proofs of concept and winning at scale with profitability. I think that's where things are stuck right now in the industry in subscale capital structures hasn't been fully consolidated yet. So if we were able to consolidate the industry into two or three players, then you probably would be able to achieve at scale streaming companies with profitability, producing content and distributing them in a global scale. And it probably would work because now you've flexed in front of the beast of the traditional ecosystem, the cable providers, the studios and said, we got to the other side of the ocean. Thank you very much. And we're here to stay. When you're in the middle of the ocean, you've mortgaged your core business and you're not quite yet at scale and profitable on the new business, and rates are going up, and you're in subscale capital structures, it's risky, which is where we are now. And so that sets up of, can you go all the way? And the consumer is much more fickle than the words appear them to be. The direct-to-consumer makes the consumer sound very pleasant 
So the consumer will leave you in a second if they don't like what you're offering them. So the churn rate has been much higher too. So you have to keep feeding the consumer, which becomes more expensive, which gets into the other phase of the transition model of streaming, which is the business has changed from being a library-based syndication model of nostalgia content, of which some companies have that. Maybe a Paramount and a Disney have really good library value and maybe Warner, but Netflix doesn't. So other companies have now employed a fully front-end based model where they sacrifice the library value for just a front-end model. And I use the example in the letter of like, when was the last time you watched an old episode of House of Cards or Squid Games? It's like here today, gone tomorrow for the benefit of getting more customers, more subscribers. The nth degree example of that front-end model is sports. You don't go back and watch old live sports events. Maybe you could package narrative sports programming like Drive to Survive and ESPN 30 for 30 and all that's different. But the front-end model ultimately is sports, but it's also the most costly. So that's where the ultimate bidding war is for sports because that will have the most competition for that consumer eyeball and the ability to get more customers and win market share, which I think is a big part of the ecosystem today is sports direct-to-consumer. But all these cross-currents, so to speak, cost money and only the most well-capitalized players will win, which puts a lot of pressure on profitability all the time consistently because you have to keep playing to win. And I think it'll end up breaking down corporate and company structures and simplifying them or it leads to more consolidation. Obviously, with Warner Discovery, you still have a company that's relatively subscale. Same with Comcast, NBC, and Peacock. Netflix is probably the only scale player that can be profitable in this game. Is there anything else holding back that consolidation? It just seems like we've been talking about, not we, but the industry in general has been talking about this for a long time. So is there a catalyst that needs to happen? Is there something preventing that consolidation? Now, as everyone is focused organically on building up cash flow streams and showing the model works because 2023 is thought to be, largely speaking, the year of peak spending of content. And then from here, the content spend should subside and then the profitability of the stream model should grow, not to the point where it's a big number, but at least it's in the right direction. And that will give management teams more comfort in buying more of it versus taking on losses, which is debt. So I think that clearing of the question that you asked, which is can these businesses and the industry be structurally positive and profitable, is the clearing of the answer of the merger question, which I think happens hopefully in the next 18 months or two years. But you got to get to their side first and it's not going to be easy. So on sports, just to follow up on something you had said there, with it really being the prized asset as it relates to content, were you surprised by Google's winning bid for this NFL Sunday ticket and how much they paid for it? DTV, I believe, has been losing about $500 million a year on that contract. What was your impression Yeah, we say Google, but it's really YouTube, so owned by Google. But I think YouTube gets to experiment with content in a different way than DirecTV, certainly, both short form and long form, and a lot of tonnage because of the way that YouTube is viewed globally. And I think that they have worked on a lot of different ways to offer programming for the NFL Sunday ticket over a long period of time in terms of the bid and the pitch and that I think will be pretty innovative from what I understand from talking to them. But I'm not surprised by the amount of the bid the tech companies are going to keep spending on sports rights. 
it's their competitive advantage. If they're not going to be buying media companies or sports franchises through the consolidation approach, they can overbid on sports rights. Same with what Apple did with MLS. It's a theme we've been talking about. And I think that'll continue. It doesn't mean, by the way, that broadcast won't also compete. I think ironically, it'll be a barbell. I think tech will play big in sports streaming. And I think broadcast will have a bit of resurgence because the cluster of the ad dollars are still very much present in traditional broadcast, whether it's local or national broadcast. If you want to watch the NBA finals, you're going to ABC still. And the NFL, I think, also respects broadcast. When you watch it on CBS or Fox, even the World Cup, when you watch it on Fox, that's where a lot of the concentrated ad dollars are that they are respecting versus the digital ad dollars, which are more meager. The in-between players that get hurt are the cable networks that are more at risk on the sports side and will play, but it's, that's where they're going to be more costly for them. But I think the tech companies and the broadcasters are going to be winning in sports rights. And where does Netflix fit into that? Do they eventually get pressured into buying some big sports rights as they well? They say no. I think it's inevitable, yes. In the meantime, they're playing around with the drive to survive, the sports narrative arcs. They have one, I think, on tennis coming out by the same producers as Drive to Survive next couple of weeks. So they're playing around in sports programming, but not sports rights, but I think it's inevitable. But they do have a competitive advantage on their scale. So they have a little bit more room to run besides using sports to get subscribers, but I think it's inevitable. And if you had to guess, how long do you think it'll take for a franchise sport like the NFL to go streaming only? A long time. I think there's a lot of value in the window, so to speak, or slicing it into different distribution mediums. And I think traditional media will be around for a while when it comes to sports, just for a segment of the rights. On the broadcast side, which you brought up in your letter, you talk a little bit about ways that regulation might be adjusted to allow for further consolidation. I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on that. Yeah, I think the overlooked part of media right now that still are being uh, hampered by traditional regulatory restrictions is broadcast, both in-market and national broadcast. I think it could allow for a lot more consolidation and national players. I also think there could be local streaming opportunities where broadcasters come together and provide local news and sports on a more streamed level owned by the broadcasters, kind of like a Hulu of local. And the broadcasters should be allowed to work together. Because as the networks take their content and go direct to consumer, then the broadcasters should have the right to, especially local broadcasters, should have the right to consolidate in a way that was unthinkable 10, 15 years ago. And the rules should be updated to do that, in my mind. It's really the FCC will have to look at all the archaic rules that hampered some of the players that now are anti-competitive to get them more competitive and they could be relaxed through the regulatory process. Another area I wanted to talk about was connectivity and the connectivity apocalypse, as people like to call it, has been in full swing in 2020 with telcos ramping up wireless and wireless companies ramping up broadband. At the end of the day, which side of the equation do you think is better positioned? Will it be cable bundling wireless or wireless bundling cable? So first, partnership capital is a very big theme that I write about in the letter, and partnership capital overall is important. If you saw what BlackRock did with AT&T for fiber and connectivity, that's partnership capital. So I do believe in capital and infrastructure players, whether it's cable or wireless, working together to extend footprints. In an environment where rates are rising, it's going to be increasingly important to find innovative sorts of capital because I think CapEx is going up. 
and the ultimate arbiters of returns of that capital will be the shareholders. And the more help you get in spending that capital, not necessarily always on balance sheet in the here and now, but sharing that burden, I think will be an important dynamic for shareholders to see a return on that capital over the next few years. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to see that kind of risk factor on top of a slowing top-line growth environment. So that being said, to answer your question, I do think the marginal cost of cable getting to wireless is pretty low. And the subscriber uptick in terms of the added portion of the bundle is very high. And the pricing power is very high. So I do like cable moving into wireless more than wireless moving into the infrastructure place in this interest rate environment. But it's getting increasingly competitive. I do like the overall connectivity space right now because I think the competition that was thought to happen a year ago, like fiber builds and overbuilds that do cost money from new entrants will subside somewhat because of the ability to attract capital and interest rate environments and so on. So I think it will benefit the incumbents overall to continue to extend their footprint. So I'm a buyer of cable and wireless right now and telecoms. Wall Street analysts have started to talk more about the idea of Verizon buying a charter. And I'm not going to ask you specifically about that, but do you think that form of convergence M&A between telcos and cable is more likely? That was rumored back in 2017, I believe, that particular transaction. But is that conceptually something that is more in the cards as we're looking forward? I do think both Charter and Verizon are innovative at this point. Both have been depressed over the last year for different reasons, but both have pretty innovative business plans. I think S is AT&T and maybe Comcast as well. But I think on the cable side, Charter announced a pretty extensive CapEx build that I think is designed to show confidence in building out their footprint, which I think is meant to show a lot of robust confidence in their core business and the broadband business over the long term. Now, investors don't like long-term capital investments and to extend when they see a return on that investment. But I think that is a doubling down on their core thesis. Verizon, I think, is very network driven now and trying to build in more innovation around their network and working with different tech companies and different players in the industry to partner up very effectively. So I don't necessarily see those companies coming together anytime soon. But remember, in the US, we don't really have national networks in cable or telecom like European countries do or Latin American countries do or Asian countries do. So That'll eventually happen through M&A versus overbuilders. I just don't see it uh, anytime soon, given the regulatory environment. Right, right. Wanted to switch gears and talk about the metaverse. Buzz on the metaverse has dramatically gone down yeah. over the past year or so. VR handset shipments is another example. In 2022, per IDC estimates, I recently saw down 13% about investors pushed back really hard when Meta announced there are big plans to step up their expenses and CapEx specifically for the metaverse. What is your view on the metaverse now it's going to play out big picture just to start yeah. there? Look, there's something about a downturn and people's bottom lines going down and shrinking that brings you back to the real world pretty quickly <laughs> or makes you want to escape to fantasy world, but you can't really actually do it. Anything that's speculative as a business venture gets put off to the side when you're dealing with the blue chips and the industry stalwarts coming down and being discounted at valuation levels that we haven't seen in since probably 2008. So I think that people address the profitable industrial companies first before they go into the virtual world, the virtual lands. That being said, if you look at them instead of being virtual in and of itself and look at it as an extension of gaming, that to me is here to stay. 
where if you think about gaming as a metaverse function, gaming is on the rise. There's 4 billion people gaming around the world. It's roughly split between men and women. And that lives a lot in the metaverse and is a great function of the metaverse. Commerce could still be a very interesting application in the metaverse where you are uh, extending experiences by shopping and things like that, which has in a lot of ways been Web 2.0 as well. So they're just extending new graphical patterns and things like that. The meta bet, which is Mark Zuckerberg's bet, is a very bold bet. And it's hard to see broad adoption right now of VR headsets. That being said, I do believe in the AR trend line over time as a mixed reality game or even workplace function. Certainly much more rich than Zoom and things like that. I just don't think it's for today. I think right now we're still going out there and traveling. We're doing events. We're getting back to face-to-face interactions, thankfully. I just don't think we're immersing ourselves into virtual lands right now. So I don't think it's for today. Yeah. Um, you know, Lion Tree also has some investments within crypto, broadly speaking. So Rare, MoonPay, Horizon Labs, as an example. Are you looking to deploy more capital into crypto this year? Or is this year a little bit of wait and see as companies are developing? Or what is your strategy on the investment side within yeah. crypto? We were never deploying a lot of capital into crypto. It was always ring fence as being something that we would look at as investing with leading companies in the space that also had other applications for it than just the currency, so to speak. So we were trying to attach our investments to assets versus it being in the ether. So we're not looking to add our exposure to crypto per se, but we do believe in those companies. So rare. I wouldn't even consider it a crypto company. I would consider it a fantasy sports gaming company that you post the World Cup. Really, you could have a stake in a player and then have the players own those players with games that they can play with each other as sort of a fantasy sports concept. They have a deal with the NBA, they have a deal with the Premier League. So I think those are really attached to traditional leagues and assets that are pretty interesting. And the others have unique features as well. But I don't think that we would be doubling down on crypto as a standalone asset that's very speculative right now, nor do we ever have a big exposure. Right. Another big recent development, at least in terms of headlines, has been ChatGBT. You do talk in your year-end letter about the tension between creativity and generative artificial intelligence, but noted the potential and opportunity for AI to, quote, turbocharge human imagination. So chat GDP seems a bit along that narrative. How do you see that developing? And which business areas do you think it'll be most impactful? would love to hear a little bit of perspectives on that. I like AI a lot because of its complementary nature to human creation and its ability to learn and then advance human creation into progress, advancement, education, other things, music, and other areas. Very much aware of the ethical risk factors around it, the educational risk factors and cheat factors, although there's apparently other AI programs that can catch plagiarism and things like that in schools around ChatGPT. But I did listen to this Ezra Klein podcast this weekend that wasn't anti-AI or pro-AI. It was much more interesting and reflective around the power of words, which gave me a new perspective of it, which is to say that When we create words or write the letter or authors produce content, there's a lot of context and warmth around those words. When an AI program produces ChatGPT-generated document in Ezra Klein's commentary, it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's meaningless. 
There's just words created, but there's no context around it. There's no warmth around it. The question is, when words are created for truth or lies, I'm paraphrasing his podcast now, those are two sides of a coin that are opposed to each other, but at least they have context. When you're creating words that have no real meaning, that's what bullshit is. It's really important that words have power and context. And I have to think more about how AI factors into that if it's just being generated by programs. Now, I understand that the power of AI to create something that can replicate human warmth or human creativity, but the question is something lost in it. And what's the read-through there? But I think the ChatGPT valuation and the ChatGPT platform probably is getting that kind of attention because it looks Google-like as a platform. And that's pretty powerful if you're matching words with advertising or you're connecting people through an AI platform that's different from Web 2.0, so to speak. That's pretty interesting. I could see that power. But if it's just about creation, I think there's something very much lost in it versus human creation. I think Liontree and what we do is culturally relevant. And I'm not sure if AI falls on the side of being culturally relevant or an abyss. My last question for you before our lightning round really relates more towards regions and emerging regions. You call the Gulf region the new Europe. Yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Why specifically are you so positive on that region and what we could see ahead? I say in the letter, certainty and uncertainty coexist at the same time. I used to say that's life in the gray area. But another way of saying that is I reward, I endorse the bet on the youth and I respect it, particularly in areas that are moving towards modernity. It doesn't mean that everything is westernized right away or doesn't mean that everything looks the way that you want it to look or it's going to get there overnight. But I do believe in the momentum of the investments that countries like the UAE and Saudi and even Qatar are making towards culture and towards the youth of their generation. New areas of entertainment and gaming and music attracts not only the youth of the energy of the population within the countries, but outside the countries and artists from everywhere coming in there, but also the capital investments coming out of those regions into investing in businesses around the world. That's not a capitalistic comment as much as a endorsement of diversification away from just oil-based economies. And they have political and economic relevance in a way that Europe used to, and maybe Europe has subsided from because the world leaders out of Europe are not as strong as they used to be. And the world leaders coming out of this region in the Gulf have gained a lot more relevance and power in the way that the future of our world and our interconnectedness is going to play. And I think everything that affects the world affects the U.S. Obviously, it's really important to track it and have a very full perspective of what's happening. But I would say there's no better place to invest in spite of the choppiness of today than the U.S. As the best companies and CEOs in the world, I've said often before that the best slope of value creation is when things go from broken to less broken. <laughs> and while the U.S. has gone through a period of cross-currents and normalization and uncertainty and strife and will go through a correction and a slowdown, the slope back up from that will be its most pronounced, I think, growth period of the last few years, especially, and maybe of my career. It'll be an interesting entry point at some point over the next six to 18 months. But I, I think it'll be growing down before we get back up again, defense to play offense. 
focus on self-sufficiency, focus on profitability, and then get to the point to, to shift to playing offense around those competitive advantages. I think that's the key moment. But I think it's the U.S.-based economy is the best investable asset. Something to look forward to then, looking ahead. Yeah. Time for your lightning round. Okay. A couple of questions here. Hopefully a few of them fun. So starting out, what streaming services do you subscribe to? All of them. The yield on the 10-year at the end of this year. And right now it's about 3.6%. 4%. I'm going to ask the price of Bitcoin at year end. And I did ask you this last year, which you were almost exactly correct at 16,000. It's about 17,000 right now. Where do you think it will be at the end of this year? I think it'll be at 10,000. Okay. S&P 500, up or down? Down. Do you own any property in the metaverse? I do. I'm sure it's down a lot in value. <laughs> but I do a lot of these things for learning purposes. I was one of the first people that was on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore, by the way. But I was on Twitter when it first came out for a while. I was on Snap when it first came out for a while. I do a lot of these things just to check them out and experiment. And then I get off of it. Is Twitter still around next year? Yes. Last question. When you blew out candles for your 50th birthday, what was your wish? You don't have to answer that if you don't want to. That the community of friends and family that I have stay with me, stay healthy, and stay together through the next chapter, through all periods. I'm grateful for them. It's a great wish. Well, there we go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aria. It's a pleasure speaking with you and having our annual discussion as always. Thanks, Leslie. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and feel free to rate and review it wherever you're listening. Stay tuned for more KindredCast conversations from leaders in business and beyond. 